Welcome to the King's Church Podcast. At the King's Church, we exist to see a greater worship of Jesus through declaring and displaying the gospel. You're about to listen to a sermon from our weekly corporate worship gathering. If you want to follow along with the sermon notes, they can be found on our website, kingschurchlkld.com. Eric. Well, good morning. You guys can grab a seat. Uh, I've had a chance to meet you. My name is uh, Ian, lead pastor here at the King's Church. Uh, grateful that you uh, chose to spend your Sunday morning with us. If you uh, are in Kingdom Kids Classroom 3, you guys can go and meet uh, your teachers today, Sarah and Isaac there at the door. Have a great time. We're going to get some outside time, which is a good prep for our picnic and park day today, because we're going to play some kickball. It's going to be 110 degrees. It's going to be awesome. We'll provide some water. It'll be great. Well, welcome once again, and uh, we are uh, in week two of a little series that we are doing this summer through the book of Jonah that we have entitled The uh, Mystery of Mercy. So me and about uh, 20 of our closest friends were gathered here for church last week, so I know that a lot of you missed uh, the introduction, so we picked it up right in the middle of the storm. So if I can just ever so briefly recap where we are at this point, uh, then we will launch into what we have for the rest of chapter one today. So uh, last week we looked at this story, the beginning of the story of this runaway prophet, this runaway prophet named Jonah. And Jonah is called by the Lord to go to Nineveh, which is the capital of the mighty Assyrian Empire, who were the primary enemies of not only Israel, but really most of the known world at this time period. And the Ninevites and the Assyrians were an extremely violent people. They would do horrible things to other, uh, other foreigners that they captured, that they would overcome and conquer. And so Jonah's fear is really understandable. He doesn't want to go and be killed. But what we see in Jonah's response, which is to run away, is that his issue is not necessarily with the Ninevites. It's not necessarily with the call to go and proclaim the word. His issue is with God himself. His issue is that God would have the audacity to offer the kindness of grace to people like the Assyrians, to people like those who were in the capital city of Nineveh. And so we see in Jonah's running, he tries to flee as far away as he can to a city called Tarshish, the other side of the world, and the Lord hurls a mighty storm upon him. Because what we saw was that God's grace runs faster than our running away. And so we left off right in the middle of a storm. We've got Jonah and these sailors. They are uh, just getting beat up by this sovereignly ordained storm that God is using to try to get back his prophet. And we'll see today that he has many purposes in the midst of this surprising mercy. Well, one thing that we're going to track today in our text is this idea of fear. I don't know if you saw that in the reading, but the fear of the sailors is something to kind of watch as we work through chapter one. And so as an introduction, I want us to think about the nature of fear for a moment. So if I were to ask you the question, what are you afraid of? What comes to mind for you? Right, I know for many of you, and I resonate with this, it's heights, right? We get real uncomfortable around heights. I went to Seattle this year, been to Seattle numerous times on a school trip, and uh, they now have this like glass floor that you can walk all the way around. Who's like excited about that? Who's like, man, I'm all in on that. You guys are crazy, crazy, Rob. Um, it's terrifying. You're just like staring down into 
nothingness. It's, it's your death that you're looking down at, right? So many of you are afraid of heights. Maybe for some of you it's public speaking, something like this. Maybe it's a fear of flying. Uh, maybe it's spiders or snakes. If I can be vulnerable with you this morning, and I want you to uh, handle this information responsibly, of course, as your pastor, uh, I am terrified of birds. Those of you who know me, know that this is true. Those of you who are trying to argue that birds are harmless or crazy, right, they have the advantage of flight, sharp beak, talon, right, they're angry. Uh, there's birds that are killing people over in Gainesville, right, just look up the cassowary, it's this dinosaur-looking thing that people are holding on to as pets, which is insane. Uh, birds really scare me, okay? So whatever it is for you, think about that for a moment. What happens when you are confronted with that fear? Okay, what happens when you are in a situation where all of a sudden you are feeling the weight of whatever that fear is? Well, what happens? We get uncomfortable, right? Our heart rate starts to come up a little bit. If you've got Apple Watch, it's starting to ping on you, right? Uh, your flight or fight spirit is sort of engaged, and all of a sudden you're, you're kind of on edge, right? You're kind of now more tuned into the situation than in a moment where you are totally comfortable and calm. Well, we see what's going on here with these sailors, who, by the way, probably did this as a profession. They've had plenty of storms that they have surely sailed through on their travels and in their different uh, commerce opportunities, but this storm has them terrified. There's something about this storm that has their senses a bit heightened, that they're more in tune with what's going on around them. And so what we're seeing is that this fear actually has a God-ordained purpose in the midst of the mercy of this storm. And so as we think about our fears and as we think about the fear of the sailors, we're going to see that their fear almost crescendos into a reverent fear, into a worshipful fear that I think God wants us to get to today. So as we continue to work through Jonah 1, here's the main idea that we are shooting at today. God sovereignly pursues the undeserving with unrelenting grace, inviting us to respond with repentance and worship. God sovereignly pursues the undeserving with unrelenting grace, inviting us to respond with repentance and worship. And so we're going to see that over three points. First of all, we're going to look at Jonah's fragile identity. Secondly, the substitution at sea. And then third, mercy at the bottom. But before we jump into that, would you pray with me and let's ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to gather this morning as your people. And we thank you that you have given us uh, this word, this sure word that comes from you, is inspired by you, is without error, is given for our instruction, our, our benefit, and ultimately our worship of you. And so I pray as we jump into, again, the story of Jonah, that you would remind us of that unrelenting grace that you continually show the undeserving. May you point us to the fact that this story of Jonah draws our attention to something greater than Jonah, the one who has come and given himself so that we might have life and mercy. And so I pray this morning that you would stir up our affections for Christ, even in the midst of the story of Jonah. Give us today eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts that can receive from your word. Show us the areas of our lives where we are running away just like Jonah. And in your kindness, remind us that your grace runs faster and is inviting us into life and life abundant. So help us to accomplish that in this time now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's begin by looking at the fragile identity of Jonah. Go back to verse 7 with me once more. And the sailors said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. 
So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And then they tell, they look at Jonah, and they say, tell us, on whose account has this evil come upon us? What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? Now, remember, up to this point, Jonah, the prophet of God, who's called to be the mouthpiece of God himself to not only his people, but here to all people, has been completely silent up to this point. He's been indifferent to the point that he is sleeping in the hull of the ship and this massive storm is upon them. Even when the captain comes down and and uses the exact same language that God uses to commission Jonah, he says, arise and call out against Nineveh. The captain comes down, he says, arise, call out to your God. Even as that echoes of God's word itself rings in his ears, he still doesn't reveal who he is. So the sailors now, they're trying to do their due diligence. Right? They're, they're doing this ancient practice of casting lots to try and figure out in what sense this divine displeasure of a storm has come upon them. And again, the irony of the whole scene is rich. Right? The sailors who don't know God, right? they have all these other gods that they are worshiping, are far more spiritually in tune than the prophet of God, who is running away from the presence of God in this moment. Now, we don't actually know what lots were historically. Most guess they were something like dice or stones or maybe cards or straws. And they were used to try to make an impartial decision. And basically, they would cast these. Maybe they would roll the dice. And based on how things would appear, they would then draw conclusions about what God is leading them to. And so this is a practice used throughout the Old Testament. We even see it once in the New Testament when they're seeking to replace uh, the position of Judas amongst the apostles. So it's a common practice. And of course, lo and behold, they cast the lots and it falls right on Jonah. Now, this shouldn't surprise us as Proverbs 16 reminds us. uh, It says, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. And so the Lord, in the midst of the mercy of this storm, is now revealing the issue here. And the issue is Jonah. And so God makes sure that the lot points to Jonah. Now, they're already looking at Jonah with a suspicious eye, but now they know that he is the issue here, right? The one who's in a deep sleep, the one who is not calling out to his God, the one who is totally indifferent to what's happening on this boat. They know that he really is the issue, and so they just fire a bunch of questions at him. They fire a whole bunch of questions at him, and all of these questions are trying to get to Jonah's identity. They're trying to get to his identity. We see three categories here, right? They are trying to get Jonah's purpose, his place, and his people, right? So they ask, what is your occupation? Well, occupation would be wrapped up in your purpose, in your mission. What are you doing? Where are you going? What are you up to, right? So what's your purpose? Secondly, your place, where do you come from? What is your country? Right? What is your sense of home? Where do your allegiances lie? And then they ask point blank, of what people are you? Because, of course, what people we come from shades and colors in who we are as individual persons. And so they're trying to get down, what is your purpose? What is your place? What is your people? And in all of these questions, they're trying to get to Jonah's worship. Remember the situation. These sailors, they are crying out to their gods, They're trying to cry out to the storm god, to the god of the sea, to any other gods they might know for this raging storm to stop. And what they're trying to do is get at Jonah's worship because they believe this was divine displeasure. So they need to dig below the surface a little bit more. Now, Jonah's response 
is incredibly illuminating. Look at how he responds here. He said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. First of all, look at what Jonah leads with. Did you catch what he leads with? He leads with his ethnic identity. Right? By describing himself as a Hebrew, there are, of course, religious connotations wrapped up in that. But this is the primary way that foreign nations would have used to identify the Israelites racially and ethnically. And so it's interesting that of all those questions that is asked, the first thing that pops out of Jonah's mouth, well, I'm a Hebrew. Right? He almost seems to be clinging to his racial and ethnic identity above all else. It seems to be the most important part of how he makes sense of himself, which again, if you were here last week, fits with the picture of Jonah. We know from 2 Kings that Jonah served under King Jeroboam, and he was promoting and encouraging the king to expand the borders of Israel. He had a nationalistic agenda that he believed was from the Lord. But this leading with his ethnic identity, I think, is revealing. In a book as short as this, every word is critical. Here's what Tim Keller, I think, rightly draws out about Jonah's response. Listen to what he says. He says, while Jonah had faith in God, it appears not to have been as deep and fundamental to his identity as his race and nationality. If his race was more fundamental to his self-image than his faith, it begins to explain why Jonah was so opposed to calling Nineveh to repentance. The prospect of calling people to other nations to faith in God would not be appealing under any circumstances to someone with this spiritually shallow identity. Jonah's relationship with God was not as basic to his significance as his race. This is why when loyalty to his people and loyalty to the word of God seemed to be in conflict, he chose to support his nation over taking God's love and God's message to a new society. You see, we know that Jonah's running is because of his issues with God, but his issue with God is that he wants to help those people. He doesn't want to help us, he wants to help them. And it's in that tension that Jonah reveals what he's building his identity upon. And he is entirely indifferent in the story to everybody different than him. You caught that so far? I mean, he obviously doesn't want to go to Nineveh. He doesn't want to go to these foreign nations. But he also is completely indifferent to the sailors, right, who also are pagans and from different countries than Jonah is from. Even though Jonah is the very reason that they are caught up in this storm, right, they have to cast lots to figure out what is going on. So he leads with, I am a Hebrew. And then he continues. He says, I fear the Lord, Yahweh, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. I don't want to read too much into the text, but can't you almost just hear the condescension a bit here from Jonah? Right? He's almost looking at them and saying, yeah, you know, you guys are all crying out to your gods, right? You've got your cute sea god and the storm god, but me and I worship the real god. Right? I worship the God of heaven who made the dry land and the sea, all of the realms of the world. He is the creator of them all, like the Apostles' Creed reminds us, right? But yet, doesn't this reveal a deep irony and a deep inconsistency? Right? I mean, the irony is he's, of course, saying, I worship the God who made all of this, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land, and then the sailors are looking at him, and they're like, are you kidding me? Right? Look at verse 10. 
He says, the men were exceedingly afraid and said, what is this you have done? Modern equivalent, are you crazy? If this really is true, if you really worship the God who made everything, including the sea, you're running from him on a ship. You see the ridiculousness of this. The sailors are going, what have you done? What are you doing? Are you truly worshiping this God? You know and fear him, but yet you're running from his presence? There's an irony there, but there's also an inconsistency, isn't there? I mean, these words could not ring more hollow in this moment, could they? Right? You fear and worship this God, but yet you're sleeping? But yet you're not crying out to him? You're not praying to him? You're not trying to help us be saved from the midst of this storm? You see, Jonah's identity is fragile and it is fractured. And it makes him completely blind to the situation and completely unaware how the words that are coming out of his mouth were going to be received by these sailors who are caught up in his own disobedience. And I think Jonah's words here ought to be a warning to us. Right? What are we staking our identity on? What are we building our perception of ourselves on? What is most important to us when we talk about our identity? Right? What are the things that are quick to come out of our mouth when we are confronted with these questions of purpose and place and people? Because like Jonah, is what we lead with something that can't actually bear the weight of being the primary thing? Is what we are primarily identifying ourselves as, can that actually bear the weight of being the most important thing? Because look, we can be quick to identify with a family name, and we can be quick to identify with allegiance to a sports team, Lord knows that is true, right? We are quick to identify our allegiance to political parties, maybe to our ethnicity, to our occupation, maybe to our interests, our desires, where we are from. Now look, these are not unimportant. Okay, Jonah's race as a Hebrew is not unimportant, but it can't be more important than how God views Jonah. It can't be more important than Jonah understanding his identity, first and foremost, as from the Lord. You see, the temptation that we face is, is to look either inward or outward to define ourselves. Okay, so our culture tells us, this is, this is the mantra of culture, right? Look inward and define yourself. Your inner desires, your inner feelings, whatever it is that you want to be true about yourself, whatever you're perceiving, that's who you are, right? And that is a lengthy sermon for another time, but you get the idea there, right? That there's something internally, the way I feel, the way I perceive myself is my primary identity. Well, in ancient cultures, and we see it here, the way they would define themselves is outward. So their occupation, their family name, the country that they come from, the relationships with those around them, that's how you define your identity. But brothers and sisters, if we are Christians, we can't start by looking inward. We can't start by looking outward. No, no, to find our identity, we must look upward. We must first and foremost know what is true about God and what is true about us in light of God. Right? If Jonah was looking upward and he knew who he was in God, that he would be secure in his calling as a prophet, guess what? He would go to Nineveh. He would obey the Lord, but Jonah's not looking upward. He's looking elsewhere. His eyes are on something else. The way he is identifying himself is not by the Lord's standards. And I think that we far too often fall into the same trap. And by the way, notice what, not just what Jonah includes, but what he leaves off. Right? What was the first question they asked him? What is your purpose? What is your occupation? You notice how his answer is noticeably missing. 
Jonah would have previous had no problem admitting, well, of course, I am a prophet of the Lord, but now, in this moment, his sense of purpose, his sense of mission is entirely in flux. He is trying to resign as prophet. He is running away from the call of God on his life. And listen, when we do the same thing, when we run away from God, when we turn to other identities that are not as important, that are secondary to the fact of being a son or a daughter of God, we will end up in the same boat. We will end up without a sense of purpose, without a sense of mission. We might fill it with things here and there, but we will ultimately be aimless as we go through this life. So if his identity is wrapped up in this, we ought to ask the question, where is our identity wrapped up? What are those things that you are quick to cling to, and what would it look like to reorient that underneath the most important identity that any of us can have, which is that we've been saved by the blood of Christ, and that we now are sons and daughters of this God that Jonah is running from. So what is it for you? What is that deepest part of your identity? Well, we shift from this fragile identity to this picture of substitution. Look at verse 11. It says, then the sailors said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. So he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. You see, at this point, the sailors are getting more and more desperate. The storm is continuing to intensify. And since they now know that Jonah is the problem, they run right up to him and say, okay, you're obviously the issue here. What should we do? And so Jonah responds somewhat scarily how calm he says this. He just says, yeah, cool, hurl me into the sea. Hurl me into the sea. And then he rightly prophesies, still a prophet, right, that the sea will calm down for you once I am thrown into it. And he has a moment of clarity. He says, for I know it is because of me that this storm has come upon you. Now, at this point, it doesn't seem like Jonah is ready to deal with the Lord. It doesn't seem like he's ready to actually uh, do business with God whom he is running from. But it does seem like he has at least a minimal level of sympathy now for the sailors. He has some sympathy and care for those who are on this ship with him. Because after all, of course, they've gone out of their way to give him the benefit of the doubt. They don't immediately hurl him off the boat when the lot falls on him. They ask him questions. They try to understand who he is, what he's up to, where he is coming from, which eventually seems to at least prick the conscience of Jonah. This is a good first step. What we don't know, though, is Jonah's motivations here. In fact, there's massive disagreement about how to understand this. When Jonah says, hurl me into the sea, is he actually submitting now? Is he actually understanding that he is at fault and he wants to take responsibility? Or... Is he sort of doing this whole hurl me into the sea because I'm kind of done with all of this, right? I don't want to deal with this anymore. I've run away. It's not working. So hurl me in and that will be the end of me. We don't really know his motivation. The answer is probably likely as it is in most of life somewhere in the middle, right? There might be some good motivations mixed with some poor ones. But what we do have insight into is the sailors. If we don't know what's going on with Jonah here, we do know what's going on with the sailors. They continue to act admirably. Look at verse 13. It says, Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to the dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. They do their best. They row hard. They care more for the image of God on that boat than the prophet of God who knows that theological truth. 
Right? They are trying to save human life, but despite their admirable posture, despite their efforts to row back to shore, there was nothing in their own power that they were going to do to stop this. There was no way in their own devices that they were going to be able to stop this storm that is a surprising divine mercy of God to track down his prophet. And so before they are ready to finally give up and hurl Jonah into the ocean, they do something that is incredibly surprising. These pagan sailors who know nothing of the God of Israel call out to Yahweh. They call out to Yahweh. Remember, Jonah is the one who is to go to Nineveh and call out against it. They are to tell them, he is to tell them about the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Now, when he's on the boat, he's presented with an opportunity. Tell these sailors who you are. He sort of does so flippantly. But look at the sailors' response. They call out to Yahweh. They call out to God himself. It says, they called out to the Lord. Oh, Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O oh Lord, has, have done as it pleased you. What an incredible statement of faith in that moment from the characters who shouldn't have any faith, from the people who didn't grow up with the proximity and the presence that Jonah had. They get it. They cry out and they appeal to God's justice of all things. Of all the things that are going on in this story, Jonah's got an issue with God's justice. He doesn't think God is just to offer salvation or forgiveness to those people. But yet the sailors who don't know Yahweh, they cry out and they say, don't hold us responsible for this. This seems like the only option. We are reluctantly doing this. Don't threaten or punish us as a result of this. So the sailors take Jonah, they pick him up, and they hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. It was calm all of a sudden. The Hebrews almost like the, the, the switch has been flipped from on to off it's called. You see, Jonah, even in his act of rebellion, even with his mixed motivations, even unsure of what he's up to in this moment, this is ultimately an act of love. This is ultimately an act of love. Where Jesus, where, excuse me, we're going to get to Jesus. Jump on the gun there. Where Jonah is saying, take my life so that you might be spared. Hurl me into the sea so that you might live, that this storm might be calmed. And so Jonah, even in his rebellion, even with his mixed motives, ends up being a beautiful picture of the gospel here. Right? Because the gospel, that good news, right? that gospel points us to a love that is at its core both substitutionary and sacrificial. It is substitution as in someone is taking the place of someone else, and it is sacrificial. It is, it is a death that's involved. They're willing to lay down themselves so that others might be saved. See, there are echoes of Christ all the way back here in Jonah. And maybe even to see that more fully, I want to take us to a parallel passage in the New Testament. If you know your Bible, this story about a storm and somebody sleeping and it growing more and more intense ought to ring some kind of bell. And it does, I think, very intentionally because there's a story with Jesus that sounds very similar to what's going on here in Jonah. So I've got the text on the screens provided, but if you want to look with me at Mark 4, I want to just read briefly the story about Jesus when he is on a boat. Here's what Mark 4, 35 says. It says, On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. He's with his disciples at this point. 
And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were, beat, were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep, on a cushion. And when they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the winds ceased, and there was great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And look at their response. They were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Doesn't that sound awful familiar? Right? Both of them are in a boat out in water overtaken by a storm. Both Jonah and Jesus are asleep. They both are awakened and told to act. They're even accused of being indifferent to the situation. Both accounts include a miraculous intervention from God himself with the storm being calmed, and both end up with people being in great fear. See, I don't think any of that is accidental. The only obvious difference between the two is the character of Jonah as opposed to the character of Jesus, right? Jonah actually does embrace that indifference. He doesn't really care what's going on, but Jesus simply speaks. He simply speaks into the storm and he says, be still, peace. And all of a sudden there was peace. Right? You see, the story of Jonah is pointing us to the greater Jonah. In Matthew 12, Jesus is going to say to his opponents, to his scribes and Pharisees, that something greater than Jonah is here. And that something great is not just because it's a substitution in general that's at the heart of the gospel. Right? Because think about Jonah's story. He's substituted, he's hurled into the sea, and all of a sudden the wrath of God is calmed. Right? But Jesus is not just a generic substitute. No, it's God Himself who substitutes Himself into our place. Christ comes as God in the flesh, and He substitutes Himself into the place of the undeserving so that we might receive grace and mercy. Again, Tim Keller's helpful. He says, Jonah's willingness to die for the sailors points us to an infinitely greater sacrificial love that brings infinitely greater salvation. Unlike Jonah, Jesus was not thrown into the waters because Jesus came to save us from a far greater peril than drowning. Jesus was able to calm the storm on Galilee and save his disciples because later on, on the cross, he was thrown into the ultimate storm of divine wrath so that he could save us from sin and death itself. You see, Jonah is pointing us forward to the one who is greater than Jonah. He's pointing us to Christ, the one who substitutes himself, calming the storm of God's wrath. Now, that demands a response. That demands a response from us. And let's go back into Jonah. Look at how the sailors respond. Right? That fear discussion now, we can see that crescendoing into its most important end. Verse 16, it says, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. You see, if we trace the fear of the sailors, it begins all the way back in verse 5. And they're fearful of this horrible storm that has come upon them. Then down in verse 10, they now are fearful because Jonah has told them, this is indeed a divine displeasure that has brought about this storm. 
And then now in verse 16, their fear has now been moved into a reverent fear, an awe fear. We could say the word worship. Their fear has now given way to a proper fear, which is a worship of God. So they sacrifice. Sacrifice is a public expression of dependence and worship. They make vows. And it's important, by the way, to see they don't do that in the midst of the storm. This is not like some forced conversion by God upon these sailors. No, it's after the storm. It's after all has passed, and they sit back and they say, man, look at the mercy and the grace of this God who spared us. Look at the way that he is powerful over all things, and how do we respond? We respond in awe. We respond with worship. We respond with gratitude. You see, they get it. God sent a storm because he was pursuing Jonah, right? He's not giving up on Jonah, but this storm from God is also for the sailors. God's mercy extends to them as well. Though they did not know God, they now do. Though they worshiped all sorts of other false gods, they now worship the true God. He's revealed his majesty, his justice, and his power to them, and he, they respond with worship. You see, God's pursuit is what brings this about. The storm would have not looked like any kind of mercy to anybody on that ship, right? In the midst of it, they're not saying, oh, great, God's just drawing us to himself, right? Let's all stay calm and just relax. No, they're freaking out, right? They're about to die, but in that storm, the surprising mercy of God draws a rebellious people back to himself. And that's the story of the gospel, That's why Jonah's story is our story. God is taking us who run away, us who rebel, us who seek to build an identity apart from him, and he's drawing us back with his surprising and unrelenting grace, though we are undeserving. So we are called to respond and worship, but the story doesn't end with the sailors, does it? The story ends here for us today in verse 17, where we see mercy at the bottom Let's read verse 17 again. It says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, if you've grown up in church and you've read all the children's Bibles, maybe you had the one where Jonah like, makes a fire in the belly. Anybody have that one? Um, sometimes we can be a little de- desensitized to this. This is utterly ridiculous, right? Like, we should read this and go, that's absurd. That's funny that God would choose to do that, right? He appointed this great fish, right? And he swallowed up Jonah. Could not have been pleasant for the fish. Definitely not pleasant for Jonah. The whole situation is absurd, but that's the point. God's using whatever means necessary to wake up Jonah to what's reality. And so what we've seen is is that Jonah's rebellion keeps being described as running downward, right? So Earlier on in chapter 1, he goes down to Joppa. Then he goes down into the ship. And then he goes down into the inner part of the ship. And then now he goes down into the sea in the midst of this horrendous storm. You see, and in the Hebrew scriptures, in, in Hebrew thought, to go under the sea meant that you were going to the realm of the dead. If you ever hear the language of Sheol in the Psalms or in the Old Testament, Sheol was often situated under the sea. It's down there. That's where death reigns. But the beauty of Jonah and the beauty of the gospel is that God's mercy meets Jonah at the very bottom. 
God's mercy goes deeper than even the realm of death, according to the thought of this time. All right, so a few things to observe here. First of all, God appointed this great fish. Right? This was his sovereign act to make sure that this happened. And by the way, it is fish in the Hebrew. Okay, it's a generic word for a sea creature, so I suppose it could have been a whale, could have been a big fish, could have been some other giant sea creature, but fish is the literal translation here. And I think we need to pause here at some point in our Jonah series and address how ridiculous this is because this is going to cause modern readers, and maybe you and me are even sitting here reading this going, I mean, really? Like, is this really true? Did Jonah really survive three days, three nights in the belly of a giant fish? Right? Many who are modern readers have a very skeptical eye towards this story. And they have a skeptical eye because of this one verse that talks about the fish. Right? And oftentimes, Jonah can almost be used as a sort of litmus test to say, oh, yeah, well, if you believe there really was a great fish who really swallowed up this prophet and he really survived there, then, I mean, we can't really have a serious intellectual discussion about this, right? They look at it very negatively, and, and they almost use it to, to outright reject the story of Jonah and the story of the scriptures. So quickly, just real quick to respond to that. There's three ways that Christians have tended to respond to that claim if they're trying to defend what the Bible says. The first thing they do, and I want to urge you not to do this, okay? They try and argue that it's actually or theoretically, scientifically possible for somebody to survive three days and three nights in the belly of a fish. Right, and I get the approach behind this. You want to build credibility to the biblical account. You want to say, yeah, I mean, God's acting, but it really could happen. Right? It's really possible, and so people have long looked for stories and folk tales and experiments to try to see if this actually could take place. Now listen, you might have found one of those, you might be comfortable with some evidence you've seen, but the evidence is shaky at best. Here's the bigger issue with that. If we are trying to build this credibility by downplaying the supernatural act of God, then we are approaching this, I believe, the wrong way. We're approaching this the wrong way because when we try to rationalize away what is so clearly and straightforwardly presented as God's supernatural, miraculous intervention into his creation, that we're going to run into more problems than I think we're ready for. Because don't forget, the center of the gospel story is full of miraculous acts. It's full of mysterious things that can't be explained away just using mere science. Right? And so before we go too far down this path, be careful that we don't strip the Bible of its actual power to tell us about this supernatural God who intervenes. So that's option one. Option two, there are others that argue that this book, because of the story of the fish, is ultimately just a parable. It's maybe a fable. Remember fables from elementary school, right? They're kind of a fictional story that is meant to tell a very real truth. It's a story where the historical details are not actually happening, but... They tell a really important message. Well, I think that also misses the point here. Right? Nothing about this story actually reads like a fable. The book opens just like all of the other prophetic books in the Old Testament. Jonah is a real person. We can point to him elsewhere in the Old Testament. He's a historical figure. Right? Nineveh is a real place, not a made-up place. And there's absolutely no embellishment of the fish here. I mean, does it strike you how just straightforward, matter-of-fact, the narrator tells us? He's just recounting the details of the story and says, without embellishment, without drawing extra attention to the fish, yeah, and then the fish swallowed Jonah, and he was there three days and three nights. 
So the fable argument doesn't seem to make sense of the evidence. Here's the last option, which I think is the best option for us. We let the text of Scripture stand as it stands. Right? We let the Word of God stand for itself because it's clear in what it's communicating here. This is a miraculous act of a divine God into his creation in order to display his mercy to a runaway, rebellious prophet. Because here's the most important thing here as we begin to wrap this up. If you're here and you're in Christ, the most important thing for you to realize as we make sense of this story is that Jesus talks about Jonah and the fish. Jesus was, in fact, quick to pull up that this historical thing that happened serves to point to his mission. Right? He was quite comfortable speaking of the belly of the fish and the repentance of the Ninevites, for what it's worth. Probably the two most controversial things in the book to point us to a greater truth. Let me read for you what it says in Matthew 12, verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. See, Jesus is connecting his own rescue from the jaws of the grave to the story of Jonah. Which reminds us that the fish is not the only unbelievable part of the story. The fish is not the only miracle that's taking place if we take at face value what's here in the scriptures. You know what else is miraculous? The fact that God would even chase after Jonah. You know what else is miraculous? That God would save some sailors who didn't even know his name. You know what else is going to be miraculous in the story? That the Ninevites, that evil, wicked empire, is going to turn from their sin. They're going to repent in the story. Those are just as much miracles as the story of Jonah. I love what one commentator says. He says, the fish represents an unbelievable theology. Yahweh wants to save the rebellious and the violent through the agency of the big fish. Jonah is forgiven and saved. Also unbelievable, the storm is stilled and the sailors worship the true God, and the Ninevites receive the message from Jonah, repent, and are saved. In this way, the bigness of the unbelievable fish is finally about God's saving way in the world. The big fish makes a specific point of God's extravagant, unrelenting, pursuing, and saving love. Brothers and sisters, Jesus comes and he says, something greater than Jonah is here. He says, I will offer up for you the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah is Jesus pointing to himself. He's pointing to the unrelenting grace of God towards the undeserving, seen most profoundly in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus on behalf of a guilty, runaway, stubborn, sinful humanity who looks an awful lot like Jonah. Remember, the story of Jonah is our story. We have run. We rebel. We question God's plans. And ultimately, we are undeserving. The good news is that God's mercy reaches Jonah when he reaches the end of himself. 
when he finally is forced to give up, when he finally stops running, when he finally says, hurl me into the sea. And it's in that Jonah coming to the end of himself that the mercy, the mysterious mercy of God meets us most profoundly. So we ought to consider in Jonah 1, where are we running away? Where is God sending a storm of mercy into our lives? Where are we seeing this unrelenting grace of God show up over and over again, even though we are undeserving? And where is God maybe calling you to stop running? Where is he inviting you to get to the end of yourself? And where is he inviting you to respond with reverent worship, with awe, with, I can't believe that God would extend that kind of mercy to somebody like me. That is the good news of the gospel that's here in Jonah, and that's something for us to respond to today. Let's pray.